Welcome to season six of Ufahamu Africa. My name is Kimmy Dion and I'm your host. And I'm thrilled to kick off the season with my partner in crime, my co-host, Rachel Baby Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim. And welcome to the first episode of season six, everyone. Kim and I are particularly excited about this season and some amazing new voices that we're adding to the show through our non-resident fellowship program. So stay tuned for that next week when all of our fellows will give an introduction, tell you about some of the things that they're planning, what they're thinking about, as well as their favorite reads, of course. And for this week, we wanted to kick off this new season with one of our favorite formats, a podcast mashup. We're thrilled to share with you this conversation with Podcast 49, which is an incredible new resource that explores the past, present, and future of U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. Judd Devermont, Director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Nicole Willett, Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation, sit down with diplomats, journalists, civil society activists, and academics to discuss policy recommendations for the Biden administration. In 15 minutes or less, they pack it all in to deliver the goods on U.S. relations with African countries, as well as share the best of African music, food, dance, film, and travel. So we're really huge fans of this new format and want to congratulate Judd and Nicole on the job. Really well done. The coverage and the depth of research, the level of thoughtful analysis is so valuable. Right. Now we want to dive right into this week's episode, but before we do, we of course want to highlight for our listeners consistent with this theme of this week's show, where we talk about U.S. relations with Africa, that the Biden administration held this week a summit for democracy. Now, this is the first of two summits for democracy that the U.S. government will host that is aimed at bringing together leaders from government, civil society, and the private sector to set an agenda for democratic renewal. Now, while the attendees of the summit include a broad range of countries, representatives from many African countries were invited, right? Angola to Zambia. Um, And to get African perspectives on democracy, Rachel and I want to point our listeners to the excellent series of pieces written by our colleagues at Afrobarometer that were featured in the monkey cage at the Washington Post. So this is a special series written just for the Summit for Democracy. There are seven pieces in total. So I'll just highlight in particular the most recent one that was written last week by Carol and Logan, Joe Asinka, and Ijima Bawadi. It's entitled, When Africans Speak Out, Are Their Governments Listening? Now, drawing on 45,832 face-to-face interviews in 34 countries during Afrobarometer Round 7, so collected between 2016 and 2018, Carolyn, Joe, and Jima's article illustrates citizen participation and government responsiveness as cornerstones of democracy. Now, they show that Africans have high political engagement, so um, in particular when they're dissatisfied with their government. So nearly one in four of the people surveyed during Afrobarometer's Round 7 report taking direct action, like joining protests, when they're dissatisfied with government performance. And importantly, they find that responsive governance is actually linked to greater citizen optimism and satisfaction. You know, that really resonates with one of the key points that I think Nicole makes in this upcoming upcoming conversations uh, regarding the emphasis on the low-hanging fruit of U.S. diplomacy and a focus on democracy, rights, and governance, and just how that bears repeating again and again. So we'll post the, the links to these articles on our website, and we'll continue our discussion and our analysis of what this Summit for Democracy means, the participants, and the conversations that take place there in upcoming episodes. 
And now here's our conversation with Podcast 49. Hi, my name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and this is my third time on Ufahama Africa. Hi, I'm Nicole Willette. I am the chief of staff at the Open Society Foundations, and this is my first time. I'm the newbie. I'm Kimmy Dion, your co-host here at Ufahama Africa, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Rachel beatty Riedel. Welcome, Judd, Nicole, and Kim. I'm Rachel beatty Riedel, the um, director of the Inaudi Center for International Studies at Cornell University and Kim's co-host and partner um, in this podcast. So I want to say congratulations to Judd and Nicole on the launch of this amazing podcast, Podcast 49. It's an exciting and I think really ambitious project for policymakers to cover U.S. policy toward every country in sub-Saharan Africa. And you've already released episodes on Southern Africa and on West Africa. And one of the things that I really love about this project is the full coverage approach, right? Recognizing the diversity of the relationships and the context and looking at the bilateral relationships um, between the U.S. And, and each country. And this combination of history, the policy successes and failures, and recommendations for current U.S. administration on each country. So can you tell us how you've been conceiving of this project, who it's for, and what are your objectives? Sure, I'll, I'll take this one. So as maybe your listeners know, I have a podcast called Into Africa. And one of the things that I found is that folks would call me up and say, you know, my boss said I should listen to this before I go to Embassy Y, or I'm about to go to AFRICOM. And so you should listen to this, this podcast. And that's uh, great. We welcome all listeners, but Into Africa is sort of a reaction to news events. And I thought instead of going for the back door, let's just hit it right at the top. Like what is the past, present, and future of policy towards sub-Saharan Africa? And there is no one better to do that with than my friend, Nicole. We both you know, have this experience working in the executive branch at the National Security Council, Nicole at State Department. And so we kind of know how um, we can, you know, how you maneuver and make policy happen. And the other thing that I think Nicole and I thought was really important about the timing is this is when uh, an administration is going to think about its strategy. So we thought that this was an opportunity to leverage our expertise to hit it right when it's important, as well as geek out a little bit on some of these histories. Now, you ask a series of questions on the show, and one regular question that you ask your guests is what the administration of U.S. President Joseph Biden should focus on in dealing with the country that's the center of the episode. And I want to throw that same question back at you, but with a whole region approach. What kinds of things um, do you want to see the Biden administration doing in their relations to African states? So thanks. It's a great question. We have been really excited on the pod to hear from so many different individuals across journalism, academia, from all across the continent and in the United States, big ideas about what we could do differently. And that, of course, makes us think hard about how the Biden administration should approach this. Um, you know, there's some low hanging fruit, right? The stuff we know, the bread and butter tools, engage, engage a lot, make sure you have representation in every Every single country, like that's actually still not even the case. Um, ensure that you have high level diplomacy back and forth between leaders. But also one of the things I think has been underscored again and again in this pod and that I subscribe to is the importance of making sure that our engagement is, of course, not just 
with government, or at least not just with political government, right? How do you engage with civil society actors who in, in many countries, just like in the United States, are those who are really sort of holding the pieces together, even when there's extraordinary tumult in these countries? And how do you engage more with civil society? Now, of course, we have a donor relationship with civil society, but how do you ensure that policymakers are really spending the kind of time learning about the places where we are sending dollars or learning about the places where we are, um, where there are legislative effects of what we do, how do you really ensure that there are relationships there that can be built in true partnership? Again, these aren't wildly new ideas, but with this administration, I think there are high hopes that Africa will not be taken as a monolith. It will not be considered um, the continent which is um, behind the rest of the world in terms of desirability for postings for our foreign service. I'm not saying that is the case now, but there is a long history of that. And I think it's important that we move well beyond it. I think it's important that we don't have meetings at senior levels that are just about, quote, Africa, or only about the great powers debate, for example, Africa vis-a-vis China, which, as we all know, is something that is deeply dominating the rhetoric around the continent right now. This is really about how you engage directly, personally, in ways that are political, but are um, taking full consideration of the places we work. I have been surprised on the pod by the number of times guests have highlighted Two things. One, the things we are not doing, again, like not having a presence in a certain country or having a presence that couldn't possibly begin to build those kind of relationships. All the way to, I've also been struck at the number of times that our guests have talked about the Peace Corps or USAID or civil society exchanges. The number of times those interactions, going back to the 60s, have helped shape sort of lay persons understanding and appreciation of America and Americans. And I think we continue to um, forget that the relationships that we build are the ones that last over the decades. It's not necessarily um, the the building we built or the bilat, the Oval Office meeting that happened. So to me, it's really about a much more holistic approach, but one that truly considers the individual relationships in each country. Again, not groundbreaking, but we are still not fully there on this continent vis-a-vis the United States. I I love that answer because it's actually reminding me, and I know that, you know, we're not trying to talk about great power relations, but it's actually reminding me a lot of Lena Ben Abdullah's book about China-Africa relations is that it's this human-to-human contact. And um, and she does even write about the U.S. Peace Corps um, in her book is, is kind of, you know, um, a comparison, right, to the U.S. So even though it has this long history, I do think it's it's a pretty creative way of thinking about it. So I agree. I like that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you know, you don't want to go back to just sort of traditional hearts and minds, right? Because that sort of takes away, um, I think, the agency and importance of having true relationships, right, on equal footing. That is not about sort of any manipulation of erasing past mistakes, of which we know there are about a zillion on the continent, um, but really does promote the idea that in any position in government or civil society that you would have serious counterparts with whom you can engage on these issues that are most important. And that really does translate down through generations, through institutions. And we're hopeful that more of that can happen. Inshallah. Indeed.
Exactly. Absolutely. And Jed, I want to get your takes on, you know, the podcast as a whole. Um, you're providing some recommendations, right? And and this is building on exactly what Nicole was just talking about, thematically um, looking at historical experiences, bringing in these expert guests. So what are some of the major themes that you've identified throughout this process, you know, across the series? Yeah, I, I have a couple, maybe Nicole has some to add, but for me, is that the U.S. government needs to treat African counterparts as if they were any other country in the world, have a normal relationship. This was a conversation we had with Zineda Machada, who is at Human Rights Watch in Angola, and we were like, what's the big idea? She's like, engage, right? The big idea was just do what you would do with any key partner. And so I think that that kind of comes through again and again and again, that that Africa is not, you know, a freebie or something that you do if you have a little time or, you know, it's it's a these are important countries and we have to engage with them as such. And I, I think related to that is something that we had a conversation with Ibrahim Aydara about who's at um, OSIWA, the Open Society Initiative for West Africa. And he was like, don't paper over the problems either. So Senegal, for example, which I know, Rachel, you follow very closely. Yes, Mackey saw, you know, it's an important, was an important election when he took power in 2012. And um, he was lauded by President Obama. There was the uh, meeting uh, in Dakar when President Obama traveled there, but there's some other some problems in the relationship now in terms of, uh, you know, Mackie Saul's democratic trajectory. We can say those things. I think that was one of uh, the things that's really resonated with me. And just finally, and this is maybe both my own view and also um, from our guests is talk about global issues with African partners. I think Uzo Iwela said this, uh, who's the executive director of the Africa Center in New York. He's, he talked a lot about climate change. Like, how do you solve climate change without Africans? Um, without Nigerians. And so those are three that I think really resonated with me. Nicole, I don't know if you had others. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, my impression here is that you get the big bucket, uh, but it's fairly predictable, right? I mean, it's democracy and human rights, it's peace and security, it's investment and economic development. These are things that everyone who works on issues related to Africa policy and who is on the continent wrestling with these questions in terms of what would be most useful. These themes come up again and again in those conversations. And those are really broad, right? But it does come back to this idea of that Judd is referencing of have real conversations with our counterparts that aren't prescripted, that aren't about some specific agenda point. Though of course there's going to be that in in diplomacy but also really engage as partners on broader issues. And I think if we don't do that, it's to our peril as we look, you know, to the future of the world. One, you know, Zenaida and I were talking, all of us were talking a bit about, you know, the narcotic transnational network that, you know, goes heroin that comes right through Mozambique on its way to Latin America. Right. So there are, there are issues in which if we are not engaging together in serious ways that we will never be able to tackle just through um, sort of traditional diplomatic partners. So I think that's a big one. You know, one of the other themes that comes up again and again is support for democracy and human rights. And I think there's two pieces of that that rise to the top in these conversations. One consistently is support for independent institutions and for civil society, right? We're talking about the backbone of what helps countries, particularly those who are fragile or who face political instability, including ourselves, being able to sustain through all of that 
up and down is to know that there are structures in place that are going to support what is best for the country rather than what is best for the leader. And I think that we have not always done everything we can do on that front. And it's not hard. We know how to do it. And in some cases, it's not that expensive, right? I mean, DG, democracy and governance programming is not the most expensive thing we do. And um, a little can go a long way. And we have consistently underfunded democracy and governance budgets um, in the United States. Yet, so many of our guests from the continent and not have really highlighted that as something that's so critical. So we really need to close the daylight between those asks and those priorities. I completely agree. And in listening to the, um, you know, guests, absolutely a theme. I'm thinking about um, Kwasi Prempa, for example, in Ghana and the relationship between the support for democracy and how important that is in terms of the bilateral relationship and how Ghana's relationship has been more outsized because of um, that role and, and the need to maintain that strength. So one thing I love about the show is the quick rundown of political and diplomatic history at the start of each episode. Um, and it's at least when we listen to it, you're alternating, right? One of you runs the history on some. And, and the other on 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 the other episodes, and and I don't know if the if the work breakdown is also equal in this way, but I'm I'm curious to know if you you could share with us, you know, what's the process for whittling down, you know, decades of history, um, into such a tight format, and if you could share, you know, what are some of the most surprising or interesting things you've come across in your background research, whether you know it made the the cutting room floor, or if it made it into an episode. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned this, Kim, because these episodes take way more time to prepare for than Into Africa. I mean, sometimes a, a, a couple of hours uh, or days to kind of get the history right. But I found this resource that I want to share with your audience called the Association of Diplomatic Studies and Training, ADST. And it's an oral history. Uh, they interview former diplomats about their experiences and their careers, which means that like if you're trying to do a piece on, on Mauritius, uh, there may not be a US Africa, a US Mauritius history book, but these testimonies give you this flavor. And so that's often why we're quoting uh, former diplomats. And so we, we take that plus what we both know in terms of our own experiences, plus I, I know a lot about the sort of the declassified history of US analysis. So I sometimes leverage that and try to give up with something. But uh, some of these ADST documents are 600 pages in and of themselves. So it takes a long time. Uh, Congo was a, a nightmare to sort of uh, prepare the history for. And like, it's 15 minutes. Like we can't have the history section be 15 minutes. So we try to do a good job on, on five. But a couple of things that I really uh, want to highlight that I, I loved finding out. Um, we did airdrops in Zambia after Zimba after Rhodesia declared the unilateral declaration of independence because we were worried about Zambians being able to get food. Like that's like Berlin, right? Like I've never known of that kind of action. I mean, there's a little bit of that with sort of uh, Operation Lifeline with uh, South Sudan in the 80s, but here's it, 1965. Um, another one that I love learning about, especially as we think about infrastructure challenges on the continent. The Army Corps of Engineers built Kismayo Port in Somalia, right? Fascinating. And the last one, I thought of it, as you mentioned, Ghana, Rachel, is this, what did we call it, Nicole? It was like um, gift diplomacy. It was scarf diplomacy between, uh, you know, 
Rawlings in Ghana and President uh, George H.W. Bush exchanging gifts uh, between each other in a period when our relationship was warming. So it gives you the spectrum of what our military can do, our political leaders can do, um, our um, you know our diplomats. It was it's really been I think fascinating to find these. And and just quickly, what I what I what I want to do with those is. Nicole and I sit in a lot, used to sit in interagency meetings where people would say, that's impossible. We can't do that. And I feel like every time we write one of these histories, we're giving people ammunition to say there was a precedent for this. It's not impossible. The system can do this. And so that's kind of the ulterior motive sometimes with the history sections. I love that. And I, th- I think absolutely the history sections are so useful for us to you know, take the long look, but in this very compressed and succinct way to understand the ebb and flow. And again, at a bilateral level, right, in the relationship, uh, not in terms of region or continent, but what was happening um, as different presidents came to power and as different um, elements were happening in each country. So before we go, as Jed and Nicole know, we always ask our guests, what are you reading? So I'd like to ask you first, Nicole, what would you like to recommend with our listeners? So one of the things, because I feel like it's always, you know, there's like 17 things on the stack, but one of the things that I have been reading and also listened to a a podcast on is um, the new book by Andrew Harding, longtime BBC um, reporter, lived in Johannesburg um, for a long time. I was in Pretoria at our embassy and we got to know each other and he has written this really brilliant book called These Are Not Gentle People about 2016 murder and free states in South Africa. And it even though it's been a few years, I think it really calls forward in addition to just being this fascinating, complex crime. It also brings forward so many of the issues that present day South Africa continues to wrestle with around the relationship between, um, particularly in the countryside and rural areas between uh, farmers and farm workers, between those who have power, those who have not had access to resources over so many years. It really brings a history of violence in the country, um, what it means to have moved forward on race relationships, what it what South Africa has accomplished and what it really hasn't, how new of a country it is in some ways, right? 1994 was really a split second ago in some ways. Um, and it really highlights all of that wrapped in a really interesting and fairly provocative story um, about a, the search for justice in this murder. And Andrew is one of the most sort of understated, um, but yet deeply passionate writers and reporters that I have ever known. And I just think it's a remarkable book. And it turned out they also then did a podcast, which um, is excellent. So I can't recommend it highly enough. I also would recommend anything that Andrew has has written because it always is deeply nuanced about really complex places. Okay, I've got. Uh, so first, um, I just finished reading Who Fears Death by Nadia Korafor, uh, who is, I mean, all of her stuff is amazing, uh, like, you know, science fiction uh, with this sort of Nigerian flair to it. And I owe Kim uh, her recommendations that first got me to the Binti trilogy and now this book. And uh, I'm really excited to share that she just joined us on Into Africa. And then I'm in the middle of reading right now uh, The Good American uh, by Robert Kaplan. It's about Bob Gersoni, who was a contractor for USAID. 
And he's just kind of remarkable in terms of the way he approached his job, you know, really focused on talking to people, like interviewing, whether they were in humanitarian camps, uh, uh, refugee camps, or if it was issue around piracy in Thailand, and then coming up with you know, solutions that work. And so it's a, it's a remarkable story about someone who can get things done uh, in the U.S. government. Um, of course, it's a little on brand for me, but I've really enjoyed it. I'm really excited to hear your interview, especially with Nnedi Okorafor, because I have been waiting, it feels like a whole lifetime for Who Fears Death on HBO to come out. Um, so, because the book is so perfect for a mini series or multiple seasons of a TV show. I mean, it's it's just it, the possibilities are. And I think Binti is going to be a Hulu series too. So it's incredible. Oh my God. You are making my day, Judd Evermont. Well, it was, uh, uh, she was very generous uh, to, to join, uh, but it was a, it was on the wish list for the podcast. So I was really honored that she joined us. Plus, I should just say, if I'm going to promote that episode, David Pilling from the FT joins us and Patrick Cathara, who's a Kenyan journalist and cartoonist, I'm sure your audience knows. And it's a great conversation about how to think about Africa differently. You know, how do we take different angles? How do we tell new stories? So it was so much fun. An all-star cast. Well, thank you so much, Nicole and Judd, for joining us today. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ufahamu Africa. You can find more episodes, show notes, and transcripts on our website, ufahamuafrica.com. This podcast is produced and managed by Megan DeMint, with help from production assistants Jack Kuvanek, Chukufanaya Ikechuku, and Manuel Topet. Our non-resident podcast fellows are Chidu Nyaruwata, Wanjiku Ngugi, Sama Fazi, Gretchen Walsh, and Zoinato Lebo. We are generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and receive research assistance from Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Our music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Until next week, Sabiri Salama. <laughs>